there was a cartoon in uh, Leadership Journal that pictures a small delegation from a church meeting with their pastor in his office, and the group is handing the pastor a petition full of signatures. And that's when pastors know it's not going to be a good day, right? (laughs) Well, the spokesperson said, Pastor, this petition requests that we change the term sinner to person who's morally challenged. (laughs) Well, the cartoon is meant to be, uh, uh, you know, absurd and laughable, but, you know, it's not that far from reality. Sin is such a pesky, uncomfortable word these days. And, you know, it kind of stirs up negative associations with other uncomfortable words like guilt and judgment, punishment. So we tend to avoid the word sin, especially in reference to ourselves. And uh, sermons on the subject of sin can be a bit touchy uh, because preaching about sin, uh, you know, sometimes can devolve into kind of a guilt trip, leave people feeling condemned or guilt-ridden. But I'm not keen on doing that uh, because I've committed myself to preaching grace, not guilt. And I think it'd be theologically wrong for me to be more focused on sin than on our divine redemption from sin. Nevertheless, I do believe we need to address the subject of sin and call it what it is and understand what it does to us. So to talk about sin from a grace-oriented point of view, we always need to tether it to Jesus Christ who comes to redeem from sin, who comes to seek and save sinners, who comes to fellowship with sinners, and longs to restore sinners. So we need to keep that perspective there. So today I want to keep God's grace in the picture as we look at Luke chapter 5, and an example of where uh, sin and grace just beautifully intersect. So turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 5, verses 27 to 32, and You know, in Luke 5, uh, Jesus has made uh, the fishing town of Capernaum uh, his home home base on the Sea of Galilee. And uh, some of you have been to Capernaum, and we've gone on the trips to Israel there, just a beautiful little place on the side of the lake. And it was there that Jesus called his first disciples, the fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John. There he also taught and healed a lot of people the early part of his ministry, and also had some of his first confrontations with a group known as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And it was at Capernaum that uh, Jesus encountered a man named Levi, also known as Matthew. Matthew had this reputation, though, as a sinner, as a notoriously rotten person. If you've been watching the new online series of, on the Gospels called The Chosen, uh, you'll see that the character of Levi, or Matthew there, is given a pretty prominent role in the story. He's an interesting character. So let's read verses 27 to 32. <clears throat> After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, 
but sinners to repentance. So, Heavenly Father, this is your word. We are your people, so please bless your word to your people today. Amen. So anyone here ever got a parking ticket? Okay, I'm there with you. Yeah. <laughs> How did it make you feel? <laughs> yeah, that's not a great feeling. <laughs> did it seem unfair? You might have thought that. Did you think the bylaw officer was a jerk? That's possible. But let's look at it from the other side for a moment here. Of all the jobs in the world where you need to have a really thick skin, one of the worst jobs would be to work as a parking enforcement officer, I think. All day long, you know, your job is to write parking tickets and levy fines for people for leaving their cars where they shouldn't, and each day facing some angry confrontations with dozens of upset drivers arguing that it isn't fair and that they only stop for a couple minutes and that you're a jerk for picking on them and so on. <clears throat> so I wonder how it feels day after day to be yelled at and hated for doing your job. Maybe there are some who enjoy that kind of confrontation. But suppose that this parking enforcement officer works for a government that people also hate with a passion and want to get rid of. And that, that new parking Regulations have been brought in quite recently. And people who park their cars on the same spot for years suddenly find themselves ticketed and fined for doing what they had always had the freedom to do before. So if it was you getting the parking ticket, you might not be all that sympathetic. But pity the poor young guy or girl who has a job like that, you know. So you see, I'm trying to put us into the shoes of this tax collector named Levi later known as Matthew and the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. And he was out there on the roadside collecting tolls from everyone who passed through Capernaum. That was his job. And tax collectors in those days didn't have offices in government buildings. You know, They just set up their tax booths in the most strategic uh, locations where people had to pass by. And so Capernaum was a strategic place. It was right on a major trade route between cities and, and countries, and so it was an ideal spot for a, a customs booth. It was also situated on, on the lake, the Sea of Galilee. So anything that moved along the road or docked at the shore could be taxed. If it moved, it was taxable. And so road, levies, road tolls were levied uh, for import and export goods, as well as cargoes of fish uh, for going from Galilee up to Jerusalem. And tax collectors like Levi worked for a government that had a, a quota to meet. But they were allowed to skim off uh, you know, a certain amount, whatever they could, for their own profit. So being a tax collector was a way to get rich at the expense of your own people. And that was the stigma that tax collectors bore. Now Levi probably worked for Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Galilee, who in turn was subject to Rome and required to collect taxes for Caesar. And so tax collectors like Levi and uh, like Zacchaeus uh, were viewed by the people kind of like legalized pirates. You know, you've heard of the pirates of the Caribbean. Well, these were the pirates of Capernaum and Jericho. Well, they were despised as traitors and collaborators of the hated Roman Empire. And so a lot of Jewish people could still remember the days when they traveled freely on those roads. Now, you had to pay 
And so these tax collectors were seen as social parasites who just sucked money from their own countrymen for their personal benefit and as servants of the enemy. No wonder they were outcasts in their own society, the lowest of the low, excluded from normal community life. And they were viewed as unclean sinners in the same category as thieves and, and prostitutes. They were banned from the synagogues. Now, we don't know how Levi ended up with this job, uh, whether he worked for it or whether he inherited it or just kind of fell into it. But it meant that each day he had to sit there taking into his own heart and soul the brunt of his own people's anger and hatred and resentment. So he had to have a pretty thick skin. But one day, Jesus comes walking by Levi's tax booth, probably with a crowd of people in tow. And, you know, Levi would have known about Jesus. He probably overheard his teaching, maybe witnessed some of his miracles before Jesus walked by that day. But no doubt, Jesus also knew about Levi you know, and what, what people thought of him. But when Jesus looked at Levi there in that tax booth, he saw something that no one else saw. And he could read Levi's heart. And he saw that under that hard exterior that this tax collector was discontented, was disillusioned with his life. He saw a hunger in Levi's heart for something more than just making a profit. And when Jesus called Levi to follow him, it was probably the first time in a long time that someone had treated Levi as a human being instead of a piece of dirt. And Levi realized in that moment, amazingly, that Jesus was offering him forgiveness for his sinful life. Talk about amazing grace, actually a scandalous grace offered freely to even the worst of sinners. Now fast forward for a moment from first century Galilee to 16th century England. When Elizabeth I was the queen of England, she had a lot of enemies too. One day, a female assassin disguised herself as a male page and snuck into the palace with a knife and hid in the queen's dressing room, waiting to stab her to death. But the queen's attendants discovered the woman, they disarmed her, and they brought her before the queen. And so this would-be assassin knew that her case was hopeless, and so she threw herself at the queen's feet, begging for grace. Elizabeth said to her, if I give you grace, what promise will you make for the future? And the guilty woman looked up and said, your majesty, grace that has conditions, grace that has precautions is not grace at all. And Elizabeth immediately understood what she meant. And she said to the woman who would have killed her, you're right, I pardon you by my grace. And she let her go, a free woman. And when the grace of Jesus comes to a sinner like Levi, or like you, or like me, he doesn't lay down a list of conditions to be fulfilled. He doesn't say, well, you can follow me if you keep following these rules. He doesn't say, you're on probation first till we see how you do. No, no grace with conditions and precautions. That would not be grace at all. 
The grace of Jesus comes to even the worst of sinners here, and it says, well, I know what you've done, but come as you are, because I have made a payment big enough to cancel your debt, all of it. And that's amazing news. You see, if you don't understand God's grace, you don't understand the gospel. And so it says that Levi, like a man released from from bondage, got up, left everything, and followed Jesus. He responded as Jesus would want all of his followers to do, making a decisive break with his sinful life. But the grace came first. Like Zacchaeus, another uh, tax collector who encountered Jesus as well and began to follow him, uh, Levi was probably quite wealthy. But now he'd have to learn to live in relative poverty as he follows his Lord. And and so his his radical obedience here is, is actually amazing for the immediate change it brings about in his life. So what did Levi then do next? Well, when you're hated by the whole population and avoided by the rabbis and pretty much everyone else, what kind of people become your friends? Who do you hang out with? Who do you have over for meals? Well, the only ones that would come. Your fellow cronies, your comrades in crime, fellow rejects and outcasts, other tax collectors, and people of ill repute. They're the only ones who would associate with you. But Levi is so overwhelmed that someone like Jesus would call him, that he spontaneously expressed his joy and his gratitude here by throwing a big banquet for Jesus and the other disciples. But who else did he invite? Oh, all his old cronies and fellow rejects, of course. And he knew that they too needed to meet Jesus. So amazingly, Jesus comes and willingly sits down to eat with this crowd of outcasts and rejects. In fact, in Mark's gospel, it tells us that uh, there were already many of them who followed Jesus. So Jesus had attracted a following among these outcasts, and no wonder they were celebrating. Grace of Jesus just so freely given that even those with the biggest debts to God find that they can be forgiven. Even the worst of sinners can come to Jesus right where we are, just as we are. Forgiven. But when Jesus called Levi and then showed up at his banquet, he was declaring something. He was declaring that the the kingdom of God is mercifully within reach of all outcasts and all sinners. They only have to acknowledge their their need. And it demonstrates that his, his grace is available to those who are bankrupt, who have nothing to trade with, nothing to offer God, nothing to gain God's favor. Simply making that simple confession. I sin, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, and I believe Jesus is my Savior. See, Jesus came for sinners, only sinners. And that's how grace works for all of us. You can't earn it, you can't do enough good works. It comes freely and comes without condition. As Paul writes in Romans 5.8, He says there, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
So Levi's banquet was an appreciation dinner for Jesus, but it was also a farewell dinner. It was a farewell to Levi's former life as he now begins to follow Jesus. That's because grace always invites a response. It was also an evangelistic dinner, Levi introducing his friends to Jesus. What a great opportunity that was. There in Levi's house was a crowd that Jesus could never have reached in the synagogue. But he came there, and they were touched. So, everybody's happy, right? No, not quite. I mean, suddenly the joyful music of celebration turns kind of dark and ominous. Because it says in verse 30a, But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Now that word Pharisees means separated ones. They were the sort of legalistic and separatistic group who devoted themselves very strictly to, to, uh, but often hypocritically, to the law of Moses and the tradition of the elders. And they're also a very powerful force among the Jewish leadership. And they'd been watching Jesus for some time, no doubt eavesdropping on his banquet and shadowing his every move for quite a while now. In fact, they may even have felt intimidated by this this wandering teacher who seemed to have the entire scriptures at his fingertips, who taught with such authority and performed such wonderful miracles, but who also had this disturbing habit of stooping to the level of these unlearned outcasts who he couldn't seem to distinguish between the sinners and the righteous. Now, to their view, Jesus was even endorsing immoral lifestyles sitting down and eating with these unclean people. And the more they saw it, the more scandalized they became. I mean, they they saw Jesus wasn't there just to lecture those people. He wasn't there to condemn those people. He was eating and drinking right along with them. To their view, he was approving of their way of life. You can just kind of hear these Pharisees saying to each other, you know, this guy's not serious about holiness. He makes friends with sinners. These religious leaders, the free grace of Jesus, was indeed a major stumbling block. It was a scandal. And it is to anyone who seeks to gain redemption on their own terms or by their own efforts. I mean, they were thinking, well, we worked hard for our righteousness. How can a teacher like Jesus welcome and accept these reprobates? He's making himself unclean. After all, don't the scriptures say in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers? And here's Jesus sitting with them. And so they asked Jesus' disciples, verse 30b, Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus overhears the question, and he answers them, first of all, with a well-known traditional saying, which the Pharisees couldn't really argue with. He says in verse 31b, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. So in this first part of his answer here, Jesus agrees with them. He says, you're you're right. These are sick people. These are hurting people. These are very troubled people here, and their way of life has damaged them deeply. And where should a doctor be but among the sick? But Dr. Jesus looks at these sinners with mercy, not with condemnation. 
He makes it clear that people are more important than prejudice. So this is the first of two truths here in Jesus' reply, which also extends to us in the church today. As someone has said, we need to treat those who live in the park or on the avenue no differently from those who live on Park Avenue. So we need to forget who belongs to the white race or the black race or the brown race. Remember, there is only one race, the human race. So the grace of God is only understood when we realize our own condition, that we all need his forgiveness. We may not be notorious sinners, drug dealers or bank robbers, but you know, no matter how you slice it, thick or very thin, it's still sin. Well, then Jesus says, finally, in verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for sinners, only sinners. He knows that the Pharisees think of themselves as righteous, even though they're probably more wretched and lost than these social outcasts. They were blind as well. At least the outcasts knew they were sick and that they needed a Savior. And that's why so many of them began to follow Jesus. These religious teachers refused to admit that they too were were sick, that they needed Jesus and his healing grace. So the second truth for us here is that those who cannot admit their need of God will not be able to receive God's gracious gift of salvation. Again, Jesus came for sinners, only sinners. And if you come to God with your hands full of your own works and full of self-sufficiency, there's no space for the free gift of grace. And free grace just means that that God can save anyone who realizes that they, they need saving and can't earn salvation on their own merit. There was a missionary named Paul Washer who served in South America for many years and He tells of a very poor mother who lived in Brazil. She had a very beautiful daughter living with her in their dirt floor home. And the mother's greatest fear was that her daughter would leave home and go to Rio de Janeiro. One day, her her worst fear was realized. She came home, she found a note, gone to Rio to find a new life. And so that mother gathered what money she had, and she set out for Rio herself. And the first thing she did was spend a lot of money at a photo booth, making hundreds of small copies of a photo of herself. And then she spent weeks going from nightclub to nightclub, hotel to hotel, restaurant to restaurant, to all the worst and seediest places, searching for her daughter, handing out and pinning up hundreds of those photos. Well, after weeks of doing this, all that money, her money was gone, and so she had to return home. Well, one night, that daughter was walking down the stairs of a hotel with a man. She'd become a prostitute. And she saw herself in a mirror, noticed how much she'd aged. She saw in the mirror something of the truth about herself. Then her eyes caught a small photograph stuck in the corner of the mirror. And she couldn't believe it. It was a photo of her mother. So she took it off the mirror, and on the back was, had been written, as the same with hundreds of these photos, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've become. Please come home. 
You know, all through Scripture we meet a holy God who hates sin, but who says to every sinner, I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've become. Please come home. And that's the free grace, the scandalous grace that Jesus offers us. And if you don't understand grace, as I said, you don't understand the good news of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. But if you come to him empty-handed, ready to receive the righteousness that only he can give through his death on the cross, he'll welcome you to his table. Well, Jesus' banquet with Levi and the sinners was an extension of the grace of God and also an anticipation of the of God's kingdom, when Messiah will one day sit down with all redeemed sinners in the kingdom of God. Like the Pharisees, we too thought at one time that we were good people. That is, until we met Jesus. And Jesus became for us then not only a window into the heart of God, but a mirror to show us how the hard truth about our fallen selves. Russian writer Anton Chekhov said, a person will only become better when you make him see what he is like. And it's only through the lens of this story of Jesus, his perfect life and perfect redemption, that we can truly see what we are like. That even at our best, we sin. But it's also through this story, which includes the cross and his resurrection, that we see the amazing love and grace of a God who's determined at ultimate cost to save sinners. Jesus came for sinners, only sinners. And he came to set us free. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your love is amazing. And we are a needy people. And our hope of our salvation lies in you and you alone. We thank you that you have offered it to us freely. I pray that no one would miss the opportunity to receive the grace that you so freely offer. In Jesus' name.